There we go. I was supposed to be, you can all sit down. <laughs> supposed to be one of those gifts, but it just, technical difficulties. That's a joke. Frank, Frank's not gone to Atlanta. Um, but I feel like if you're visiting with us this morning, you should know that our senior pastor is a Patriots fan. <laughs> if you need to get up and leave, we understand. <laughs> but please don't. Please don't. Welcome. Uh, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, today is Super Bowl Sunday, um, and the Patriots are in the Super Bowl. You know, two weeks ago when they won, I thought, you know, good for Frank. The Patriots haven't been to the Super Bowl in a while. Um, I thought all of those things, which weren't true. So, anyway, enough about Frank. Frank's not here. My name is Patrick. I'm the youth pastor, uh, and I will be preaching this morning from Philippians. So we are in the book of Philippians, and as I wrestled through the passage over this last week, and I listened to Frank's message from last week, and I listened to it again, and I listened to it again, because I was trying to find in there, what are these next four verses built on? What's the foundation of them? Verses 27 through 30. And I came up with this, because it's very evident in there. It's Paul's selflessness. So to really get a full grasp on what's coming, I think we need to back up a little bit. Because if you remember last week, Frank essentially preached two sermons in one week, and he did a fantastic job. I will not do that. Um, but we need to start at least in verse 21. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. This standalone statement, this standalone verse is really Paul in one sentence. It's what Paul was all about. It says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The NLT says, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Frank gave us a little bit of history on Paul in his last two messages. If you haven't listened to those, you can find them on our website at utown.org. I... Um, you should listen to them if you haven't, if you missed them for whatever reason. But here's some more background from Paul himself. He writes this in 2 Corinthians, and you can follow along on the screen. Paul says, I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times, the, five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Forty was thought to have been a death sentence. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. For Paul, living meant a life lived for the advancement of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. And for Paul, dying meant full union with the one for whom he lived his life. Frank said it last week, it was a win-win situation for Paul to live as Christ to die is gain. 
But if you think about it, either way, Paul was dying. And so this is what I mean by Paul's selflessness. Paul exemplified what his friend Luke wrote that Jesus said. He says this in in chapter 9, verse 23 of Luke's Gospel. He says, Jesus says, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Dying to oneself is a uniquely Christian way of life. And yet it seems to be a lifestyle for the few. Last week, Frank talked a little bit about idols, if you remember. And sure, we all have idols, phones, sports, money, you name it. But I think that the idol that we all have is ourselves. And it's far more insidious than all of those things that we can point to. It has pervaded even our understanding of what it means to be Christian here in America. James Emery White, he's the former president of Gordon-Conwell, he calls this spiritual narcissism. If you're unfamiliar with that term, Narcissus, he was a hunter in Greek mythology, and one day he's walking and he sees his own reflection in some water. He becomes so enamored with his own reflection that he devotes the rest of his life to his own reflection. Sounds a little silly, but that's where we get the term narcissism which is essentially uh, the preoccupation with one's self. And so what is spiritual narcissism? Maybe you've heard a fellow Christian, a friend, or maybe you yourself have fallen victim to this way of thinking, but it's the, I'm just not getting anything, or getting fed at that church, or I need to be ministered to, or I didn't get anything out of that worship service. Instead of the mentality, I want to be a part of a community that's teaching me how to feed myself and others. Or I want to be a part of a community that I'm able to minister to others. Or, God, were you honored through that service? Because after all, worship is of you and for you, is it not? It's hard to see where this spiritual narcissism comes from because Jesus, he said things like, I came to serve, not to be served. He said things like, whoever among you wants to be first must be last. Whoever among you wants to be the greatest must be a servant of all. And he also said, not my will, but yours to the Father. So I think part of where this comes from is a misunderstanding of the good news about Christ. I think what people hear when they hear the gospel a lot of times is, I matter. For many people, the gospel is a proclamation from God himself that they matter. Here's what I mean. For many, the gospel is the very first time that they've truly understood that they are loved and that they matter in this world. All of their problems, their sin, their frustrations, their struggle, their suffering, it's all been taken by Jesus because he loves them. And that's true. You should hear me say that. That's true. But... Jesus didn't die and take on all of that so you or I or they or anyone could matter in this world and be free to pursue our own selfish desires, physical or spiritual. Jesus didn't stand before the disciples and tell them to go back to work so they could pay their bills and tell people about him if it came up in casual conversation. No. He died to pay a debt that you and I could not so that you and I could be reconciled to the Father being dwelt by God himself, the Holy Spirit, and live a life in denial of ourselves to exalt the only one who deserves exaltation, and that's Jesus. 
He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And last week, when Britain, uh, Braden, and I wasn't in the second service. Braden and, it's going to come to me. Tori. It was Tori. Britain, Braden, and Tori, when they went into that water last week, you know what that was a picture of? Death. It was, it was a picture that they wanted to show you that they were willing to die. You know why? So that Christ could live in them. So when they went into the water, that was a picture of death. When they came out of the water, that was a picture of resurrection, of new life in Christ. Um, it goes back to this. Paul said it. For, to, for Christ meant living. To live was Christ, to die was gain. Paul was selfless, and I want to know today, are you selfless? Am I selfless? So this is the foundation on which Paul pens these next few verses, which are Paul's thesis for the rest of the letter. He spent the first 26 verses responding to the letter that they wrote him, and now he lays out um, his thesis for the rest of his letter here starting in verse 27. It says, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. That is an amazing verse, okay? I'm looking at the NLT this morning because I like the translation decisions that they make in this part of Scripture. Some of you are reading from the NIV, others, and it leaves out the citizens of heaven part. So let's talk about this. The word there is a little bit tough to translate because at face value, it means to be a citizen. But it was also a word that meant to live or lead your life. And so a literal translation could sound something like, now, only live your life like a citizen worthy of the good news of Christ. So I like the NLT and the CSB because they take it a little further and they use this phrase, citizen of heaven, because that's exactly what a citizen who believes the gospel is. They are a citizen of heaven. Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, and the church was a colony of heaven in Philippi. So as a standalone verse, this is good. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But then, at least I did this, I read it and I thought, that's so good. What does that mean? What does it look like? And I'm sure if I spent enough time here and dug around enough and moved enough stones, I could probably come up with something. But I don't have to because Paul continues. He continues in verse 27. He says, Then whether I come and see you again, or only hear about you, because Paul was in prison and didn't know if he was going to get out. He says, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. This is it. This is what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. To stand together as the church with one purpose and one spirit, fighting together for the faith. As we read further in the letter of Philippians, and Frank's going to pick this up next week, we see that there's some disagreements within the church. Okay, and, and Paul wanted them to stand together. So this is where Scripture blows my mind. All right, Paul is writing to a group of people that he knew personally. He's writing directly into their context, 
And yet the church has read this letter for thousands of years, and it speaks oftentimes directly into the church's context. Even today, directly into our context. Are we standing together with one spirit and one purpose? Are we? I don't know if I really need an illustration here, but it gives me an opportunity to brag on the varsity basketball team at Francis Scott Key High School. Not the boys. <laughs> Sorry, that was a dig. Uh, the girls team, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, TJ Devlin, Chuck Black, and myself, we have the privilege of coaching the varsity girls at Francis Scott Key High School. If you haven't read in the paper, we're 16-1. and one. I'm just an assistant coach, assistant to the coach, actually. Uh, just kidding. Um, but hey, that is not what defines our success. Way back in November at tryouts, the very first thing we said to them is the definition of success is our peace of mind knowing that we have done everything we can to get to where we are. And so every single individual girl has to work hard on that team. If any one girl checks in, doesn't show up, decides not to play hard, it affects the entire team. That's just the way it works. Now let's bring that into church talk. I think that one of the tendencies of Christians in America is to create a win-loss column. We start talking about church attendance. It's up, it's down. What are we going to do? It's great. The, the most recent post or article by Tom Rayner um, he's this guy who writes a lot. Um, it's not so much that attendance is declining, this is what he says, but it's the frequency of attendance that's declining. So it's not that people aren't going to church, it's that they're going to church less. That is not, that, that, that is a misunderstanding of what church is. Church isn't a place we go to, right, Kevin Paul? Did you hear what I said? Kevin's a youth leader, so every once in a while he tunes out and to make sure he comes back in. Um, I'm just kidding. Church is not a place that we go to. It's a defining characteristic of who we are as followers of Christ. Let me say that again. It is a defining characteristic of who we are as Christ followers. We are the church. Okay? And so for Paul... We're supposed to stand together in one spirit with one purpose. So again, I ask, are we? This is one of those gut check sermons. What's our mission at UBC? Anybody know? This is where we get interactive. Love God most, love others best. There's a hint. It's written on the wall outside. But hey, if we're not doing that, then it's just pretty words on our wall in the lobby. Love God most, love others best. What's the vision of UBC? Nobody knows this. It's in our Constitution and bylaws. We spent a lot of time on that. The vision is that everyone who considers themselves a part of the church, this church, this local body, is intentionally sharing the gospel of Jesus while serving and building relationships in our community and beyond. So I had this thought this week as I was preparing for this. What do random people in our community think of Uniontown Bible Church? 
And so Friday, I was going to go to Dunkin' Donuts and notice how I said was going to, was going to go to Dunkin' Donuts in Tawny Town and ask the first 15 people that walked in, like a salesman, hey, have you heard of Uniontown Bible Church? But then it snowed all day and I decided I didn't want to drive there. <coughs> uh, true story. But I got breakfast, this will have to suffice, I got breakfast with a fellow youth pastor in Frederick this last week and told him I was the youth pastor at Uniontown Bible Church and he said, oh, that's that church up on the hill off 75, right? I was like, yeah, that, that one, that's it. It's our building. That's where we, yeah. You know, I think if we were to ask a random person, they would probably, this is hypothetical, but if they knew someone that went to UBC, they might associate Uniontown Bible Church with that person and vice versa. At least that's the hope, right? I think a lot of people think of where the building is, where, where we are right now, but that's a misunderstanding of what the church is. It's an interesting question, though. What is our testimony here in the community? Are we standing together with one purpose? Paul continues in verse 28. He says, Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies, and this will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. This is an interesting verse. It's interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, the first time I read it, I kind of went, ah. like it made me feel a little uneasy. It felt like divisive. It felt like an us and them kind of a statement. And so I did a little more digging because that was my responsibility as preaching this sermon. And that word that's translated uh, intimidated is a verb that's very rare. It's not found anywhere else in the Greek New Testament. And so to translate it, we have to look at other sources. So the classical Greek uh, uses this word, and it's a word that describes shy horses. Horses that get startled and scared when something approaches them, okay? And so that's what Paul thought of his friends in Philippi. He thought they were scared horses. That's what we get from him using this word. So what would the church in Philippi have to be so scared of? Why would they be intimidated? Well, we can start with the obvious one. The guy writing in this letter is chained to a Roman guard. He was in prison. But Paul was not intimidated by the imperial guard. In fact, he saw them as enemies of God, destined for destruction, and in desperate need of a savior. I think Paul's lack of intimidation only added to his testimony. Think about it. If Paul had been intimidated, then his argument wouldn't have made any sense. He claimed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, the promised one that came to set things right and pay for the sins of man with his own blood and life. God himself with the power to lay down his life and take it back up again. God himself that lay breathless in a tomb for three days and walked out of it alive and glorified and ready to ascend into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father with a promise to return as King of kings and Lord of lords. So what did Paul have to be afraid of? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. For Paul, the Christ to live meant Christ. To die was gain. You want to kill me? Kill me. I will rise because my God is king. 
So what did Paul, like, he said to his Philippian friends, to you and to I, do not be intimidated. Your lack of intimidation, my lack of intimidation, in the face of those that would stand against the gospel, is in and of itself a sign of the very salvation that we claim. And it is also a sign of their destruction. Their rejection of the gospel is in and of itself a sign of their destruction. But this is where a burden for the lost and a love for our enemies comes in. That's a uniquely Christian mindset. I am going to love those who stand against me and my God. Paul continues, he says this in verse 29, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. So we have to spend some time here in this verse because there's two incredible truths. One of them we talk about all the time, especially here on Sunday mornings. And I love that. That truth is that we have been given an incredibly gracious gift, and that is the ability, or better, the privilege of trusting in Christ. Other translations say we've been granted this gift of belief. Now, whether you prescribe to the whole free will or election view is totally a rabbit that I could chase right now, but rabbits are faster than me. Okay. But seriously, they are. And so I'll say this. I'm always up for coffee and theological conversations. I said that last time I preached in June, and I guarantee I'll say it next time I preach. I always want to get together and drink coffee and talk about theology. But I'll say this. If there was a clear answer either way, then it wouldn't be such a huge controversy within orthodoxy. What I more so want to talk about in this verse is the second truth, which I think is talked about far less in the church. It says that we've been given the privilege of suffering for him. Huh? What happened to life to the full? What happened to Jesus had my best life in mind? We have to wrestle with this. In Acts 14, 21 and 22, it says, After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers, they encouraged them to continue in the faith, and they reminded them, we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Or how about what Paul says to Timothy? Everyone, not some people, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, not might, will suffer persecution. This is in Scripture. We have to wrestle with this. This is not generic suffering. This is not effects of Genesis 3 fall suffering. This is not suffering from sin. This is suffering because of your testimony of Jesus in your life. Paul himself sat in chains in a Roman prison because of his unyielding, unfading, never-quitting proclamation of the gospel. That's why he was in chains. Was Paul suffering? Yes. Did Paul know he was suffering? Yes. Did Paul care that he was suffering? It sure doesn't seem like it. He sang songs. He rejoiced all the more. 
Verse 30, uh, if we were to continue, I think it adds a lot of insight to this, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk about this in our context. Suffering and persecution in America, it looks a lot different than in other parts of the world today, and especially throughout history. I like the way this one Gospel Coalition author says it. He says, we can't minimize the extent to which traditional Christianity and traditional Christians are facing increasing intolerance in this country. The fines, the lawsuits, the jobs lost, the public disdain, these are not figments of the imagination, but no amount of public relation work is going to rescue the church from being thought by some as backwards and bigoted. You can't out-nice your way or out-justice your way into um, cultural acceptance. Not if you hold traditional biblical views on gender and sexuality or things like that. It doesn't help the church or our fellow Christians to insist that we kindly acquiesce to the culture's demands. We have an opportunity to defend the faith as we defend each other. Now with that said, let's be clear. Most of us still have it pretty darn good in America. We're not getting beheaded. We're not getting thrown to the lions. We're not being thrown into prison. There's over 300,000 churches in America the overwhelming majority of Americans still call themselves Christians. It's legal to be Christian. It's legal to proclaim Christ. And it's legal to convert to Christianity. And so let's not miss all the things that we have to be thankful for to pretend that everyone's out to get us. Here's the deal. Scripture is very clear. If you are a true believer in Christ laboring in this world on his behalf, you will suffer. That's what Scripture says. But Gordon Fee, he's a commentator. He seems to think that we in the West, in America, we don't know too much about the content of verses 29 and 30, suffering for the sake of Christ, because we're intimidated. This is Gordon Fee saying this, so back off, okay? Right. But I agree with him. We're so scared of what suffering might look like that we just don't contend for Christ. I hear this often as a youth pastor. I can't talk about Jesus at school. Who told you that? Where does it say that? I want to see it. Show me. I can't talk about Jesus at work. Why not? We don't have lions are in the zoos. But I'll say this. You want to know why I didn't talk about Jesus when I was in high school? Because I was scared. I was intimidated. I knew that my testimony wouldn't make a lick of sense. And things just didn't add up. I was intimidated, so I made myself look and sound like everyone else around me. And if you think it changed when I graduated high school and went into the workforce and went into sales, well, guess what? You're wrong. My language did not add up to the testimony of Christ in my life. My topics of conversation did not add up to the testimony of Christ in my life. My behavior did not add up to the testimony that I had of Christ in my life. That's tough as a pastor to stand before you and say that. But you know what? 
There's a whole lot of grace for that. And if that's you today, guess what? There's a whole lot of grace for that. I condemned myself and others around me with my intimidation. That's, that's tough to swallow. As someone who loves to stand in front of people today and talk about the grace of, of God, I condemned myself and those around me by my, with my intimidation. Do you hear that? Paul said this, don't be intimidated. It's not about you. It's not about me. He's shown me that over the years and he's still teaching me it. I'm not even 30 yet, guys. Next month. He continues in verse 30. He says, We are in this struggle together, and you have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. This is a beautiful statement. Paul tells them, My struggle is your struggle, and your struggle is my struggle. This is the beauty of the church. This is the stuff that I can't quite wrap my head around. Our brothers and sisters around the world are facing persecution. Our brothers and sisters in China are sitting in prison, have lost everything they've ever worked for. And this verse says that that struggle, that suffering that they are in the midst of, that's our struggle. Do you pray for the persecuted church? Do you? They need them. How many times is Paul in his letters, pray for me, pray for me. I need you to pray for me. The persecuted church needs us to pray for them. So I'm going to pray right now. Would you join me? Father, um, you know this to be true. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around this world are facing persecution. They're facing desperation. They're facing questioning. They're facing people spitting in their faces. They're facing jail time. They're facing losing stuff, not having food, not having clothes, all of those things. But God, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you have promised to be with us and to be with them. And so I pray, Lord, right now for courage, for boldness, for joy to fill them, to fill them full right now as we speak. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Let's end with this. Um, my question is, are you intentionally sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in your area of influence? If your answer in your heart is yes, awesome. Keep doing it. Be encouraged. If you're sitting here this morning and you feel like crap at this question, sorry, excuse my language, if you feel bad, let me say this. Stop. 
He loves you fiercely. He's empowering you, changing you, molding you, taking your desires and changing them to match his. Maybe you're just not sure how to do it or what that even looks like. Like, what does it look like for me to share the gospel in my area of influence? Maybe that question just baffles you. That's okay. Maybe the first step for you this morning is to find a pastor at this church. Talk to Frank. Talk to myself. Talk to Mark or Jeremy. Bill's on a sabbatical. Leave him alone. (laughs) Glad I remembered that. But talk to a pastor. Find an elder. Talk to them. Talk to the person that shared the gospel with you. Say, I need help. I know this to be true. I believe this in my heart. I just, I can't quite get it out. It would be a joy for any one of us to sit down and have that conversation. Um, For whatever reason, I think a lot of it is intimidation. We've talked about that. But sharing the gospel with another human being is daunting. We just can't all be Billy Graham. Unfortunately. Um, But it's daunting. But I would say this. Some of the most joy-filled times in my life have been the opportunities that I've had to sit down with someone and explain to them who Jesus is. And explain to them that there is a solution to your problems. It is so joyful to do what God has purposed us to do. I got the opportunity to hang out with the band on Thursday night. And we talked about how it is a joy to lead worship. Because God gifted Jeremy with the beautiful gift of piano playing. You want to hear me play? No, you don't. You want to hear Frank sing? No, you don't. My office is next to his. But it is a joy when we do the things that God has purposed us to do. And if there is one singular purpose that every single Christ follower has, it is this. To share the gospel. And then let me say this. If you're sitting here this morning and you feel cold or hard to some of the things that you've heard, because I know in a room this size, there are people in here that don't know Jesus yet. You know of them. You've heard his name. You're obviously here for a reason. Let me challenge you for a second. Sin is real, and it's killing you. And you are headed for death. And you don't have to. Because the death that you're headed for has already been dealt and it's already been paid by Jesus Christ. The sin that is so real in your life has been taken care of. Patrick, how do I get that? Repent from it. Turn from your sin. 
and turn to God. I can't do it for you. In youth group, sometimes I bring a kid up and I put the kid there and I say, this kid right here is sin. He represents sin. It's usually Jaron. It's, just, it's not a knock on Jaron. Just, he just happens to be sitting there. And then I get, I, I say, you know, it's like, it's like we're just, we're drawn to that. And to, what does it look like to repent? What does it look like to turn? It looks like this. Sin's over there. I'm running this way. To Jesus. Because he's paid for it. That's what it looks like to repent. Um, I really do believe this. He wants to see you live life to the full. And this is that part that we don't talk about a whole lot. He wants to see you embrace the suffering that's coming your way because of your testimony of Jesus Christ. Because he promises to be with us through it all. Through it all. Through it all. Sorry, that just popped in my head. Um, okay. Now, we have the opportunity to remember what Christ suffered for our sake on the cross. We have tables up here, and recently we switched the direction, so I need to say it. Uh, you will stand up. I'll pray. The band will come up. And when you stand, you're going to go to your right. It used to be to the left, but to your right. I didn't say left. I said right, because that'll help with the flow of things. And then we will all take communion together. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we, we're here to worship you. We're here to give you glory, to give you praise. We're here to learn about you. We're here to, to see how you, through the power of the Spirit, are working in our hearts and in our lives. Father, I know that there are people sitting here this morning that don't know you. I know that there are people sitting here this morning that just aren't living this life for you. I'm one of them sometimes. And so I pray, Lord, that you would break through this time, that you would break into our hearts, that you would intervene, and that you would point us to yourself. Draw us closer to you. I pray that through this time, as we take communion together, um, that we would reflect on, on you, on Christ, and what you did on the cross. The suffering and the sacrifice that you laid down your life for us. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen.